Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. You may have noticed that it has, again, been a while since I released an episode of One from the Vaults, but I hope you'll forgive me when I tell you that it's because I've been away working on a feature film about trans history with director Chase Joint. This December in Los Angeles, we shot Framing Agnes, a hybrid documentary about early patients of the UCLA Gender Clinic in the late 1950s, about the construction of media narratives on trans lives, and about the lies we're forced to tell to access what we need. Check out Framing Agnes on Instagram to follow along while we continue work on the film with an aim to release in early 2021. That time period, the late 1950s and early 1960s, is fascinating for a lot of reasons. As I've discussed on previous episodes, this was the moment when healthcare for trans people began to coalesce into the standardized, if often problematic, system that we have today through the creation of gender identity clinics. While some early modern surgeries had been performed on largely isolated cases since the turn of the 20th century, the establishment of gender identity clinics ushered in a sudden and sustained wave of access to hormones and surgeries that had been out of reach for the vast majority of trans and gender variant people prior. Today's episode of OFTV traces the life of another early patient from this period, Her tumultuous, but often glamorous life captures the difficulties many early transitioning trans women experienced in the 1950s and 60s. A content note, this episode includes mentions of sexual violence. There are no graphic descriptions, but I do want to give a warning, as there are multiple mentions of sexual assault throughout. So, sit back and listen as OFTV tells the story of Patricia Morgan, the so-called man-made woman. Patricia Morgan was born a Pisces on March 12, 1939 in Jersey City to salesman Nicholas Glavosich and his wife May Arcadiano. There are differing but always harrowing accounts of Pat's early life in Hoboken. Zagria writes that Pat's mother left her father shortly after Pat's birth when the father was unwilling to feed them. Her mother stole milk from neighbors' doorsteps in order to feed the newborn, facing scorn from the grandparents when she finally let her pride give in and asked for help. Unable to take care of the child, Pat's mother put her into an orphanage at 15 months old, but later returned to claim Pat when she remarried. In an article she wrote, or perhaps more likely was interviewed for and then had ghostwritten in Female Mimics Magazine, Volume 1, Number 3, published in 1963. 
Pat claims her parents fought bitterly while she was growing up, and that by the time she was seven, her father had died. No love lost there, with Pat hating him so much she claims she had to be paid to attend his funeral. Pat was shuffled between various aunts and uncles growing up. Her school life was no relief, as girls refused to play with her and boys bullied her for not being masculine enough. The final straw, she would later claim, would come at age 11 when Pat was caught playing doctor with a downstairs neighbor girl and sent to a boys' home for juvenile delinquents. The boys' home turned out to be even more wretched, and it's here that Pat says she was sexually assaulted for the first time. She tried to run away numerous times, but each time would be found and taken back to the jail within the boys' home. Three years of this came to an end when another aunt agreed to take her in, but shortly thereafter, the aunt's husband also sexually assaulted Pat. It's not hard to imagine how desperately Pat sought independence from the violent and abusive adults around her. Perhaps in the hopes of gaining some, she took up shoe shining at age 14. Not long after, she started taking the bus from Hoboken to Manhattan to shine shoes on 42nd Street. The Deuce, as it would later come to be known in the mid-century, was already taking its post-war turn into a red-light district, and it's here that Pat first met Shelley. Shelley was, at that time, a male sex worker who showed Pat the robes. Though she refused the many sexual advances Johns offered at first, after being kicked out by her aunt for being caught kissing her aunt's male lodger, at 15 she finally ran away and started turning tricks alongside her new best friend. It was also while shining shoes that Pat first read about transsexuals in a newspaper. She knew immediately that this was what she wanted most, to change sex. So, with her new independence on the streets of New York, Pat could finally wear women's clothing. Pat, Shelley, and another friend formed a little gang of outlaw queers, surviving the streets by turning tricks and shoplifting. Unsurprisingly, they were eventually caught after robbing a trick and ended up spending three years at the Elmira Reformatory. Inside, Pat met William Hurst, and the two fell in love. Though he got out first, by the time Pat was released from the reformatory, William was already back inside for another crime. On the street again, Pat reunited with Shelley and their friends and returned to a life of survival sex work. After meeting a transsexual, Shelley and a friend disappeared to California for a time before returning as women. Through the emerging networks around her, Pat managed to get on hormones and began living full-time as a woman. Now more determined than ever, Pat and her friends worked out how to have sex stealth, i.e. without tricks realizing that they were assigned male at birth and she dedicated herself to working as much as possible so that she could fill the savings accounts she had opened. Patricia got in touch with Dr. Harry Benjamin, who had quickly become the go-to expert on sex changes after being asked to take on the case of a young trans person with a supportive parent in 1948 by none other than Dr. Alfred Kinsey, you know, of the Kinsey scale fame. Harry Benjamin is such an odd character, taking on hundreds of patients following his initial case and often refusing payment from them. 
Just over a decade later, when Pat got in touch with him, he'd quickly become the most sought-after figure in trans healthcare by the ever-increasing numbers of trans people who'd appeared in the wake of Christine Jorgensen. Through Benjamin and her own networks, Pat learned that the surgery would cost $5,000. Trans historian Zagria has helpfully done the math here and puts it around $35,700 in modern money. No small sum for a street-based sex worker to cobble together, and yet, somehow, miraculously, Pat did. I remember it all very well, looking back, it was the summer I turned 18. We lived in a one-room run-down shack on the outskirts of New Orleans. We didn't have money for food or rent, to say the least, we were hard-pressed. Then mama spent every last penny we had to buy me a dancing dress. Mama washed and combed and curled my hair and she painted my eyes and lips. And then I stepped into a satin dancing dress that was split on the side, cleaned up to my hips. It was red velvet trim. While she was saving, Pat was again arrested, this time for prostitution. She managed to pass through a strip search without being clocked, and then announced in court that she was a boy thus causing the charges to be dropped as, at that time, the prostitution law only applied to women. Once she had all of the money squared away, Harry Benjamin put her in touch with Dr. Elmer Belt in Los Angeles, who had been doing surgeries on Benjamin's patients for the past decade, and in 1961, Pat flew to LA to get hers done. But even with Benjamin's approval, Dr. Belt required Pat to stay for four months in advance of her surgery and be subjected to a full psychological assessment. It's unclear, but presumably this was done through the still new gender clinic at UCLA. While awaiting her surgery, Pat continued working as a sex worker. One night, she was picked up by a movie producer, whose name she discreetly did not preserve for the historical record, much to my consternation. He was drunk driving and crashed the car. She sued him following the accident, and they settled out of court for a small sum of money. Finally, the day came when she got her surgery. Well, the first surgery. Sexual reassignment surgery for trans women was still in its infancy then and performed as a multi-stage procedure. Dr. Elmer Belt had a particularly strange way of doing it. The first surgery consisted of a panectomy, the removal of the penis, and implanting the testicles into the abdomen. Why he did this puzzles me but it was his practice at that time. Intriguingly, in her article for Female Mimics, Pat claims that her testicles had descended late in puberty and pins some of her femininity on this. As we've discussed previously on this show, vague claims of intersex conditions and differences in genitalia were widely used in 20th century trans memoirs and self-narratives, often quite dubiously used to substantiate trans identity. After nearly eight weeks of recovery from the first surgery, in which she largely could not move from her bed, the second stage was vaginoplasty, the creation of the neovagina. Following this surgery, she moved in with Shelley, who had also relocated to Los Angeles, presumably for the same reasons. Shelley was hustling hard to raise funds herself, and 
Unfortunately, Pat was raped by two of Shelley's tricks while she was recovering. Though the men were arrested, so too was Pat, charged with living in a house of prostitution. Her 30-day sentence was spent in the prison hospital. Shortly thereafter, Pat developed a urinary tract infection and had to have a third surgery with Dr. Belt to repair the problems. Having finally recovered, Pat wanted to get the hell out of LA. She returned to sex work again to get the money to fly back to New York. Safely home, she kept working to bring in money for breast implants and rhinoplasty. The first pair of implants were far too large, so she had another surgery to swap them out for a smaller size. Again, Pat was arrested, this time for accepting a ride on a rainy night. Pat's lawyer tried her old trick of revealing she was assigned male at birth to get off on the charges, but the judge was having none of it this time. While it was true she hadn't yet legally changed her name or sex, the judge ruled that she was in fact a woman and gave her a suspended sentence. This is one of the earliest pieces of American case law that upheld the identity of a trans person over their birth sex. However, it seems to have never been used as a legal precedent since. By 1963, she was fairly well known as a success by the trans women of New York. She took acting and singing lessons and tried to find a husband, though she notes her displeasure with chasers proposing marriage due to her being, as she put it, a curiosity. She was, however, again arrested, but this time for indecent exposure. Her crime? Walking down the street in shorts that were too short. She gives this purposely playful account. It was a wonderful day for a trial. I awoke early, dressed carefully in my best blouse and skirt, and hummed with happiness as I put on makeup, flounced out the door of my apartment, and headed for the courthouse on Manhattan's Center Street, where I was being tried for indecent exposure. The calendar said it was August 11th, 1963, but for me it was like my birthday, wedding day, and anniversary all rolled into one. It wasn't the first time in my life I had seen the inside of a courtroom. I had spent almost three years in jail back when I was a different kind of person. But the idea of being charged with walking down East 57th Street in New York City wearing shorts that revealed too much tickled me to my womanly core. This time I beamed with happiness as my heels clickety-clacked down the hallway. Men turned to watch me and even the magistrate looked up as I entered the court. Until my case was called, I sat there smiling to myself, conscious, in a feminine way, of the sideward glances of men about me. City of New York versus Patricia Ann Morgan, the clerk bawled out. I swept from my seat and walked demurely and respectfully before the magistrate. As the charges were read out, I stared at him behind his high, majestic legal platform desk. He stared right back, matching my smile with one of his own. Are these charges correct, Miss Morgan? He asked when the clerk's machine gun monotone finally stopped. Did you really walk down East 57th Street on August 4th wearing shorts that were too short? No, Your Honor, I said. My shorts weren't too short. It's just that my legs are too long. Case dismissed, the magistrate laughed, and I couldn't help but laugh along with him. When she eventually did legally change her name, she changed it to Patricia Ann Glavosich. 
using Patricia Morgan as a pen name in Female Mimics magazine. Pat started working as a nude model, or figure model as she put it, after seeing a sign in California that said, Figure Models Wanted. Eventually, she saved up enough money to launch her own business, a fleet of limousines driven by showgirls in bunny outfits. Yes, that kind of bunny outfit. A United Press International article on June 1967 published in newspapers across the country on her new business described her thus, quote, Miss Patricia Ann Glavosich of Hoboken and Manhattan has a Tallulah Bankhead baritone, a figure that stage whispers 46, 25, 36, she's six feet tall in her boot heels, a bare-walled office, two desks, two phones, seven black limousines, and 14 bunnies. As the article points out, she was trying to find a legitimate way to employ the other showgirls, read, sex workers, she knew. The bunny craze of the 1960s led by Hugh Hefner was still swinging, and she wanted to cash in. Asked about copyright infringement, she says she isn't worried. That said, her business only lasted a year. After the dissolution of her company, Pat returned to sex work. She claims to have mainly worked with celebrities then, though again, she fails to mention any specific names. As the 1970s rolled in, her old flame, William Hurst, showed up on her doorstep, finally released from jail. They restarted their affair, but being inside so long had changed him from the sweet J.D. she knew into a hard man she wanted nothing to do with. When he was rearrested for bank robbery and murder, it came to light that he had not, in fact, been released originally, but had broken out. She simply moved on. To make some cash, Patricia hooked up with writer Paul Hoffman and penned the short transsexual memoir, The Man Made Doll, in 1974. Made inexplicably spelt M-A-I-D. An advertisement for her autobiography appears in a 1974 issue of Lee Brewster's Drag Magazine. Sometime after the publication of her autobiography, an older gentleman friend helped Pat buy a candy store, which the ever-enterprising hustler quickly turned into buying the building it was in, and then the building next door. She became a landlady, which at last gave her the independence and financial stability she'd been longing for all these years. Patricia Ann Glavosich, a.k.a. Patricia Morgan, died in 1986 of unknown causes. She would have been 46 or 47 years old. Here's room 546 It's enough to make you sick Bridget's all wrapped up in foil You wonder if Thanks for listening to this episode of Born from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. 
If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. And don't forget to sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com slash OFTV for extra bonus mini episodes. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.
drop our cheese in a fix. Amphetamine has made her sick. White powder in the air, she's got no bones. And can be scared. Here they come now. See them run now. Here they come now. Chelsea Johnny Ball, he collapsed on the floor. They shut him up with milk, and when he died, so impossible. Here they come now. See them run now. They come now, Chelsea girl. Here they come now. See them run now. They come now, Chelsea.